Welcome to the AT Parenting Survival Podcast, where you get help and guidance through the chaos of parenting a child with anxiety or OCD. This show is for educational purposes and is not intended to replace the guidance of a qualified professional. Here's your host, child therapist, Natasha Daniels. Well, hello there, and welcome to another episode of the AT Parenting Survival Podcast. Today, I want to talk to you about a topic that's actually come up during my free series that was going on all last week and the week before. We're talking about self-care and not in the way that you normally think about self-care. We're talking about you know, our perceptions and our mindset, how we show up for these problems. And a lot of discussion started to happen around detachment. And I like to say lovingly detach from our children's anxiety or OCD. A lot of people had questions about how do you do this? So I had told them, you know what? I actually thought I had an episode already on this and I didn't, or I missed it, or I might've talked about it in a a different topic. And that's why I thought I talked about it, but I feel like this would be a really good episode for everyone out there raising a child with anxiety or OCD to explore why do we detach? Like, cause that sounds like a bad word, right? Detach. So I want to talk about why it's helpful. I want to talk about what detachment isn't. And then I want to talk about how do you lovingly detach? So it's a three-parter for today, and I hope that you find it helpful. Before we get started, I have two announcements. I want you to know that this podcast is sponsored by NoCD, and NoCD offers affordable, effective, convenient therapy, and they are available in the U.S. and outside of the U.S., And I love NoCD because it has really been able to give me the power to connect people with services in a way that they couldn't connect before. So when people say, there's nobody in my area, now I can say, have you tried NoCD? And more often than not, they're like, I haven't. And they get connected with services. So you can schedule a free 15-minute consultation to see if NoCD is a right fit for you and your child. All you have to do is go to treatmyocd.com. That is treatmyocd.com. The other thing I want to tell you about before we get started, because I will forget as I get deep into this topic, because this is one of the topics that I really love to talk about, because I think it can be a game changer. And I love when simple but complicated things can really alter how well things are going in your house. So I'm excited to talk about this topic. But before we get started, because I will get excited and I'll never come back to this, I want you to know that the AT Parenting community, my AT Parenting community, is open for a few days. So if you're listening to this in real time, and by real time I mean like the week that this actually is coming out, it should be Tuesday, February 15th, 2022, and the membership is open until Thursday. So it closes on February 17th in the evening, and the AT Parenting community membership only opens every three months. And it is the cost of a copay. So it is like a $30 copay. And for that, you get a crazy amount of stuff. So much so that people have actually contacted me and said, Natasha, I think that that's like a ridiculous price because most memberships are, you know, $60. Some are actually $100 a month. And I want it to be affordable for families. I want it to be a copay. And they get free access to one of my online classes. So I have an online school, AT Parenting Survival School, and that is totally separate from my AT Parenting Community membership, totally separate. But I gift my members one of my classes for free. 
which is $127. So they can get how to teach your child to crush anxiety or how to teach your child to crush OCD or how to teach your child how to crush social anxiety. They get one of those for free. They also get about, I think, three or four other classes for free while they're a member. That's just a bonus. The real cool thing is, in my opinion, our Zoom support group calls once a month. The kids get a Zoom support group call once a month. And I come in and I teach live on a topic that they vote for every single week. So I actually get to know you and people get to contact me. They get to go into the member-only website in the forums and they get to ask me questions directly. So it's like having a friend who also happens to be a therapist on tap, which is pretty crazy and totally worth one copay. So if you are interested in learning more about this, go to atparentingcommunity.com. Like I said, I only open it up every three months because I really spend a lot of time focusing on our current members. I don't want to be seeing new people flowing in all the time or a tight knit group of people. And so we open the doors and we close them again. So if you want to join us, I would love to have you over there. I'd love to get to know you better, and I'd love to be able to help you on a more intimate level. Just go to atparentingcommunity.com, and you will see it open if you're listening to this live this week. If you aren't and it's a replay, you can get on the wait list, and you'll be notified as soon as I open my doors up again. Okay, let's dive into this whole lovingly detached aspect of the life that we are living. (laughs) So let's talk about why it's important to detach. I want to start with that because for some of you, and not all of you, but for some of you, I have to sell you on this idea of why attachment and detachment is an important thing because it can sound, especially with all this attachment parenting and this positive parenting, it can sound like the antithesis of that. It can sound like a complete opposite approach to what is very in vogue right now. And that is not the case. So I'm going to talk about this. So let's get into why lovingly detaching is an important thing. And I keep saying lovingly because I don't want you to see detaching as a negative thing. So the first thing is when we're raising a child with anxiety or OCD, and I really honestly think this could be relevant for anyone, but especially for us, we don't want to jump into a pool where our child is drowning and, and try to get them to the side, right? If we were a lifeguard, would we do that? We jump into the water. No, a lifeguard is trained that they're going to stay solidly on ground where they're anchored, where they're grounded, and they're going to throw something, a skill, a tool, uh, a life preserver to the child and then get them to go onto solid ground. That's our job, right? So you cannot help your child if you are not an anchor yourself. That's just a fact. I wish it wasn't sometimes because I'm not always an anchor. You're probably not always an anchor, but we have to be, or we have to at least have an intention to try to be an anchor or a rock in order to help our kids with anxiety or OCD. That's when we're going to be the most helpful is when we are the anchor. I'm not saying it's easy. We're going to talk about how to be an anchor and you're never going to be a hundred percent the anchor all the time, but that is the goal. Okay. The next one, I have a couple of metaphors or analogies, so just bear with me on this, but you are your child's coach. And if you've taken any of my free series, or if you're in the AT parenting community, You have heard me say this before, that your child is in the driver's seat and that you are in the passenger seat, regardless of whether you want that or not. That's just a fact. There's only so much you get to control of your child. Your child has to put their foot on the gas or the brake. They have to steer or they have to not steer. That's their choice. And we don't get to scoop over and grab the wheel. And another 
analogy for this is if you were a coach, you can't go in there and start playing the game with the kids, right? Because if you did that, you would have no perspective. You're in the middle of the game. So if a football coach just went in and started doing the plays, they wouldn't have the perspective of where people are supposed to move and how they're supposed to move and to coach them from the sidelines. That is our job. And regardless of whether you are on board with that being your job or not, that is the only effective job that you have. It just is a fact. And so, and I've learned that with my own three kids with anxiety, no CD, that regardless of whether I want them to do the things that I know will help them, because I have all this clinical expertise, if they don't want to do it, it doesn't matter. The buck stops there because I am only one small component of their journey. And so that's my role. And that's why my expertise and my knowledge of being an anxiety no CD child therapist doesn't take me too far. I can catch up parents to my level of knowledge pretty easily because it's not rocket science. People could take a couple of my courses or they can join the AT parenting community and they're caught up to me. You know, they really are because it's it's, it's pretty simple. The hard part is the daily grind of it. The hard part is knowing the things your kids need to do and seeing them not doing it and not having the power to really change that. And sometimes I think parents beat themselves up and say, maybe I'm doing something wrong. Maybe if I approach it this way or that way. And a lot of times, especially with the skilled members in the AT parenting community, they're doing everything right. It's just their child is in the driver's seat where they have to be, and they're not putting their foot on the gas. And so there's only so much that we can do. Okay. So you're the coach. When you're the coach, we don't want issues or triggers impacting your response. The best response, the ideal response when your child is having an issue with anxiety or OCD, whether it is difficult behavior or whether it is panic or they're paralyzed or they're having physical issues, whatever it may be, the best response that we can give in a perfect world is to be a clean slate, to be an anchor, to say, I am the coach. What does my child need in this moment? What am I about to provide? Now I'm saying that. But if you can do that or meet those goals 20% of the time, that means 80% you get emotional, you get triggered, you're not the anchor, but 20% of the time you show up in this pure, focused, neutral way, you're doing amazing. (laughs) You are going to really catapult your child's progress. Their long-term success is going to be exponentially increased because of that 20% neutrality that you are able to bring forth. So how do we do that? Because I'm not asking for perfection because if I was, then I would be a hypocrite because there's no perfection going on in this house. Ask my kids. They'll gladly tell you. (laughs) But we do want to get to that magic, maybe 20%, where sometimes we get into this Zen moment where we are in the zone. We know our role. We know our child's role. And we are there to facilitate that. So that's being lovingly detached. In order to be neutral, I have to be lovingly detached. Unfortunately, we're human. And so we come with our own baggage. And so the reason why we're often not lovingly detached comes from a couple of different things. And it's different for each one of us. So one, we might have our own issues. So when my kids have issues around people being mean to them or bullying them or them not fitting in socially, my clarity and my anger 
is clouded by my own triggers of feeling socially rejected, having a social anxiety disorder. So all of that comes to the table when I am trying to help my child with their issues. And I am in more of a fight or flight response. I am in like social anxiety by proxy where I'm like, they're rejecting us or I can't have my child be rejected. I'm actually feeling their pain. And so I'm not approaching the situation with clarity because it's it's getting muddy because of my own issues. So you have to ask yourself, what issues of mine do not help me become lovingly detached? What issues show up for me? The next one is that a lot of times our kids can trigger responses in us. They can make us feel like a bad parent. They can make us feel ineffective. They can make us feel like we're we're not being successful. And so that's an important thing too. Whatever those things are, those are like your emotional and mental health triggers. It might be that you're worried that they're going to turn into your brother or your father or your sister or your friend that, you know, didn't do well and didn't function in life, right? And so those are all triggers, the triggers that come from your child's behaviors, but they're not your child's behaviors. Another thing that can actually happen though is that you're triggered by your child because of what they used to be like. So maybe they're making a sound or they're having a fear that brings you way back to when they first started struggling and you're thinking, oh my gosh, I don't want to wind up in the hospital again, or I don't want to wind up in inpatient or in therapy once a week or in therapy every other week, whatever it is for you, it will be different for each one of you. But our kids can actually trigger kind of a a PTSD response where we're nervous that it's going to get bad again. Some other barriers to being able to detach is that you might be an empath. Our sensitive kids are often huge empaths. They soak up everybody's energy. They soak up emotions. There are some amazing silver linings to that. You know, people who are highly empathic are caring, nurturing, wonderful, incredible people that we need in this society, right? Especially now, we need kind, generous, warm people. The downfall of that is when it's not contained or when a person doesn't know how to control that, they feel everybody's pain. And so a lot of our kids, part of their anxiety is that they're wide open emotionally and sensorily. Sensorily, I just made that word up. Their senses are wide open. Their emotions are wide open. They're like a huge wound out there for the salt to pick up. And we don't want to be like that. And so the apple doesn't fall far from the genetic tree. And so a lot of times you as a mom or a dad are like that too. And so you're physically feeling your child's pain. And I've heard parents say, and even in our my free series this past week, a parent said, I physically feel his pain. And I thought that was really poignant that it's not even an emotional thing. Like when he is in pain, I feel it in my body and that happens. And so that can also make you not want to detach because you want to get rid of that pain as quickly as possible. The good news is when you learn how to detach and it does take a lot of time to fine tune this muscle, you don't feel that physical pain at the level that you do when you don't work on it. Okay. The final thing I just want to mention so that we can get into the other aspects of this episode are when we lovingly detach, we are actually doing a couple things for our child. So we are saying to them, you've got this. I don't have to get emotional about this. I don't have to rescue you. I don't have to make you happy every moment because I 
as a rock, as an anchor, know that you've got this. And so it it oozes confidence in our child, even if they don't have confidence in themselves. And there is a thing called mirror neurons that actually mirror other people's emotions and reactions, which I think is really fascinating. And so if I'm believing in my child and I am lovingly detaching, my mirror neurons are shooting off and saying, calm, calm, calm. And that's contagious. That's physiologically contagious. When I worked in a locked treatment center, it was not a fun job. It was made my eyes twitch. I think I've talked about this before. The, these were kids who were duly, no, they weren't duly adjudicated. That was a group home. I worked in several places, but these were kids who often were in the foster care system and they had a really rough life and they had mental health issues. And so they were in this locked facility because partly they were too aggressive to be anywhere else and they had mental health issues that were making them aggressive. And so it was a very scary place to work because these were boys and they could get very violent very fast. And as a therapist, I found that when I'd come into something that was chaotic, or if I came in and there was someone who was, you know, like an animal trapped in a corner, like they were like almost feral, like they were seeing red, the calmer I was, whether I was talking to the staff or the child, the calmer I was. And not that I was faking it, like the the truly calm demeanor that I had would be contagious. And so instead of, you know, getting louder with the problem, I would get lower. I didn't like it. I wasn't very good at it because I don't handle violence well, but that approach definitely helped. Long-term, it wasn't good for my physical well-being because I don't deal well with violence, but that's how we want to approach our kids. The, The more out of control they're feeling, the more controlled we want to feel. And that's hard. I mean, I'm I'm telling you why it's a benefit, but I get that that is really, really hard. And I struggle with that in my own home. And so I don't want to paint a rosy picture of if you could just do this, you know, then your child will benefit. Remember, I talked 20%, right? So we're talking a small percentage of time that if you can show up with this clarity, it's a gift to our kids. Okay. The last point is that it fosters independence. And so if I'm not lovingly detached, I'm going to swoop in for whatever reason, maybe because I want to grab the steering wheel. Maybe it's because I want to jump into the water with them. Maybe it's because they've just triggered one of my own issues, whether it's I'm afraid they're going to get really not well again, or it's actually triggering one of my mental health issues. Maybe I'm physically feeling discomfort, whatever it is. I'm going to want to jump in if I'm not detached and I'm going to want to fix it. And I'm going to want to fix it in every way that I can quick and efficiently, which often means accommodating. So if my child doesn't want to go somewhere and they're having a meltdown and I'm triggered and I'm not detached, then maybe I'm going to be like, you know what? Don't just don't go. It's fine. Or maybe they want me to complete an OCD loop, or maybe they want me to complete a compulsion with them. And because I'm not detached, I'm going to be like, you know what? Just here, here's your answer. Yes, it's fine to eat. Or no, you're not a bad person. Whatever it is, you know. Yes, I'll go wash my hands for you and make make food because that's what you need. No, I'm not saying that you can't do any of those things because accommodations are pulled back systematically, one step at a time. So you might be doing some of those things, but you're doing them with intention. You have a plan. You're saying these are the accommodations I'm not doing, and these are the accommodations that I am still doing. It's a process. But when we're not detached, there's no process. We're operating from emotion 
There's no order or intention in any of your parenting. And when we're parenting a child with anxiety or OCD, there has to be some order. They're not going to be ordered. There's not going to be intention with them. They're going to be the chaos. And you are supposed to be the anchor. And you're going to have to come back to that because you're going to get off center. You're going to lose your your focus. You're going to lose your core. And you're going to have to come back to it. So it's like balancing. You're going to fall to the left, come back to core. You're going to fall to the right, come back to core. What's my intention? What am I working on? What's my goal? What triggers are happening to me? And we're going to talk about this in a minute as far as how to detach. But when we don't swoop in and fix things for our kids, we foster independence. And so then my child learns how to self-regulate. And that doesn't mean that you can't co-regulate and then move to self-regulation because we want our kids to be able to be independent. We want them to be able to calm themselves when they're at school or when they're at a friend's house. We want them to be able to see that their OCD is coming back or their anxiety is coming back and know a plan and know what coping mechanisms they can use regardless of whether you are right there or not. We don't want to foster dependence on us. And even though that might feel good for some of you because you feel like you have a purpose, you feel like you're, you're, you belong, you feel loved, you feel needed. Now, a lot of us have those issues. Those are childhood issues. And we have to dive into those regardless of whether you feel like you have time or not. That will help your child because if you realize I need them to need me, and that's why I'm knee deep in their anxiety or OCD, and we have to work through that, right? So I, I think that's plenty as far as why detachment is helpful <laughs> and, and why we have a hard time detaching. So let's talk about what detaching isn't. It's not pulling back your love or support. I think a lot of people hear detachment and they think literally leaving the house, and we'll get to that. That might be part of it at some points, but that's not what detaching means. It doesn't mean ignoring my child. It doesn't mean not being loving. It doesn't mean not feeling. It doesn't mean not caring. In fact, I feel like it it actually is more love, more support, more intentional attention on your child, and more care in an effective, productive, successful long-term way. That's what lovingly detaching is. It is showing up to the game with a clear head, with a clear role on what you're supposed to be doing. So I hope that that helps you see the difference. I know I've in the series, and this is what had prompted this episode, one parent had said, "If I feel guilty if I don't feel their pain. And that's something to explore because if you feel guilty, if you're not suffering with your child, you want to look at your own self and you want to say, what is that about? Why do I feel bad or guilty is a better word if I'm not feeling my child's pain? If I, and I use this analogy, this was in one of our bonus Facebook lives during this series. And by the way, if you ever want to join one of my free series, you can just stay tuned for them or get on my email list. I'm sure there's a link in the show notes to get on my newsletter and then you'll be notified when I have these free series. But we're doing a bonus class on this. And I said, as an example, Do you think a lifeguard feels really bad if they rescue someone, but they didn't feel the drowning? Or if your child's having an asthma attack and you don't feel shortness of breath? No, that actually would make you ineffective, right? And so we don't want to feel our child's pain. In fact, it is like, can you imagine a doctor operating and they are feeling the cuts that they're making as they're doing surgery on you? That would be very, very ineffective, right? We don't want to feel our child's pain. That doesn't mean that we don't love them or care about them. 
But in fact, if you're an empath or if you feel big emotions, that happens anyway. And for some of us, it doesn't happen. But what you really want to do is not have that pain. I can't think clearly when I am feeling my child's rejection. I can't think clearly and coach them when I am afraid with them. And that's not going to help my role, which is to be the anchor and to be the coach. So when you don't feel your child's pain, that doesn't mean you don't love them. It means that you have separated out their pain from your pain so that you can be the anchor to help them. That's good. Okay. Let's spend the rest of the time talking about how to lovingly detach because that's really, you might be like, yeah, 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 Natasha. Okay. I get it. I get why it's good. I get why it's helpful. I get how it's hard to do, but how do I show up lovingly detached? Well, let's talk about it. First of all, it's a practice. It's a way of being, and it's a way of being that is a muscle that's going to have to be worked on every day and you're never going to fully achieve it. So it's not like a race that you're going to run it and then you're going to get to the, to the finish line. And now boom, you are lovingly detached for the rest of your life. If only life was that easy. (laughs) It's a practice. Just like mindfulness is a practice. It's a practice because you have to show up and do it every day. And it might become easier over time because you build those muscles, but it's something you have to practice every day. And I always like to think that every day is a new day. That's gotten me through a lot in this past year that I show up every day and it's like a brand new, I think of the day as like a brand new canvas. And sometimes if I'm taking some time to reset or I actually am lucky enough to work from home because I work with you guys, I will go walking in the desert in the middle of the day to reset. And if I'm stressed from the day or whatever's going on, I'll remind myself today is a blank canvas. Yesterday doesn't matter. Tomorrow doesn't matter. Nothing matters because the only thing that's happening is today. And I think of this canvas and I think, what do I want to paint on it today? That's what, how you can think about parenting and your child's anxiety or OCD. Today is a blank canvas. What are you going to put on it today? So when you're practicing detachment, you're practicing loving your child, but not drowning with them. And you're practicing showing up for your role and not enmeshing yourself into their role. And that's tricky, and you're going to have to work on it every day. But I think over time, it gets easier. So the first step, let's talk about concrete steps. I'm going to talk about some that are like mindset, and I'm going to talk about some that are physical. So let's talk about the mindset ones. Know your triggers and your issues. That's huge. You know, if you have to grab a piece of paper and write them down, do it. We did that in my series, right? Like, what are your triggers? And so. I'll give you an example. If you're kind of like, I don't know what, I don't know my triggers. Let me talk about me because that's what I do best. (laughs) So just to give you kind of an example, these aren't going to be yours, but then you're going to be like, oh, okay, I get what she's talking about. So triggers for me, choking, that's a big issue for me. So these are my issues. These are my mental health issues. So I have social anxiety. So the fear of rejection, judgment, criticism, boom, 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 that will trigger me. If my children are feeling any of those, I'm going to be coming with my own issues and I'm going to have to do a little bit of work to separate out their stuff from my stuff. Choking's been an issue for me in the past. So that could show up when they, when they were learning how to swallow pills. Luckily, my husband was alive at the time. And so he handled that because just looking at them as they're trying to swallow a pill was triggering for me. And so he would do that. Getting blood work. Okay. That was one of my, these are all my anxiety themes. And so I have fainted when I was getting blood work done when I was a kid. 
the thing. It just grosses me out. And so my husband, when he was alive, he would take the kids to get their blood work because I have I have a kid with Hashimoto's. I have a kid with celiac. I have a kid with POTS, uh, all autoimmune issues. That's not a coincidence, but that's another podcast. And so he would take them because I couldn't handle the blood work. Now he's gone. And so I have to suck it up and do exposures and work through it, which I am because we do what we can. But those are my mental health issues. So what are yours? It doesn't have to be a diagnosis, but what things kind of make you stressful? Being late, mess, noise, what things are triggers for you? Those are, by the way, all three important to me too, because those bother me as well. And then you might want to say, what things am I putting on my child's issues? And so, for example, for me, my father was bipolar with psychosis, multiple suicide attempts as I was growing up. And so it's very hard for me not to see a potential junior version of my dad in some of the behaviors that I see. And so I'm seeing that sometimes I'm seeing my kids not through my clear lens, but I'm seeing it through the lens of, I don't want you to be like my dad. That's scary to me. And so who are who are what kind of things are on your lens that you're putting on? And it doesn't have to be a person. It can also be situations like you're going to live with us for the rest of our lives, or you're not going to be able to go to college, or you're not going to be able to sleep by yourself, or you're not going to be able to eat enough, you're not going to gain enough calories, whatever your what ifs are. That's what's on top of your lens. It's not what's going on right now in front of you. It's what you're putting on top of the lens when you look at your child. We want a clear lens. We want ideally some clarity. We want to see things exactly as they are, not as they might be or they have been. So we want to check that out too. So, you know, just take a piece of paper if you're, you know, a person who wants to actually do the work and just jot these things down. What are my triggers? What is blocking my lens? What's clouding my lens? Who does my child remind me of? What am I afraid of? What are my what ifs? And then, this is the hard part, you got to deal with that list. And we don't want to ever do our work. Well, I don't want to say ever. That's not fair. It's hard to do our work. And so we come up with excuses. I don't have time. That My kid is my front burner issue. I can't focus on me. This is too much. I will just fake it till I make it. Or these aren't really that big of a deal. And the truth is, one of the only things that you actually can control is yourself and these things. When you do better, your child does better. And that's just a fact. I've seen that time and time again in my therapy practice, and I see it in the AT parenting community. When parents are focusing on themselves, which is counterintuitive, their kids do better, especially when they're focusing on themselves in this way that directly relates to their child. And so I'll give you more concrete examples. So for the choking, I had to do exposures. I stopped cutting up my kids' food in tiny little pieces. I stopped cutting their hot dogs vertically so they didn't choke on it. I, and I sat with the discomfort. I would watch them eat it. Now, as they got older, I stopped cutting their food altogether, which took me a long time to do, which is weird, I know. And for any of you who have listened to me for a long time, I mean, I've done a crap load on my social anxiety. I mean, I literally did a hierarchy. I did exposures. I've actually, I have a memoir on social anxiety that is being edited. I have to find an agent. I have all these books that I've published and I don't even have an agent. Isn't that bizarre? I mean, I've just worked directly with the publishers. And one of my books, my Anxiety Sucks book, is self-published, which actually is ironic because that's the one that's doing the best. But I wrote a memoir on my social anxiety. I actually wrote it before my husband passed away. And then I had to kind of write an epilogue based on that and kind of like, because, you know, he was my blanket. I didn't realize he was my blanket on my social anxiety. And then once he was gone, 
it was like, oh my gosh, this like harsh world of being alone was like so crazy in my face. But anyway, that is being edited and I do need, I'm actually going to find an agent and actually try to get this published with a different publisher. So that was like way too much information that you wanted to know about. But I, my point is I've done crazy amount of work on my social anxiety. And, and so that doesn't show up anymore. And when it does, I recognize it because I have been working on it so much. I recognize it because it's foreign. It's separate from me now. So the minute that I, I call my social anxiety Paro. So the minute Paro shows up and is like, oh my gosh, they hate your kid or your kid, you know, is so quirky. Everybody's looking at you. I can recognize that voice because I've done so much work that it is separate from me. I am detached from my social anxiety. There's space in between so that when it starts to talk to me, I'm like, you don't talk here. You know, I understand that you're freaking out, but I have nothing to do with my child. My child is their own person and I don't care what other people think. I do my work. I do the work that I've done. And so you might have to do your work, right? Whatever your triggers are. If you are telling yourself a story that says, if my child is unhappy, then I'm a bad parent. Well, that's that's ridiculous, right? Kids actually have to have contrast. You have to have sadness to have happiness. You have to have anger to have joy. You have to have discomfort to have contentment. Our world is about contrast. I would not be able to appreciate anything in life if I didn't at times not have it. And so those moods help our kids experience contrast. And that's just part of the human condition. And so working on the stories that you're telling yourself, I'm a bad parent. Everybody in my family says I'm bad, or my husband says I caused this problem. You have to work on those narratives and you might have to go see a therapist, or maybe you have to just do this work yourself and say, is that really true? So that it is not on your lens. We want clean, clear lenses. We don't want it to be clouded. So working on your own stuff is really huge. Next, moving on, you want to remind yourself what your role is. And so the global role is I'm a coach, right? My job is to provide my child with resources, whether I connect them to a therapist or treatment or psychiatrist, medication, whatever that may be, right? So I'm going to connect them to support. So maybe my part of my role is advocating right? Advocating in a school system or advocating to get them the mental health support that they need because it could be hard to find. So that might be part of it. Maybe I can't. And so I'm, you know, taking one of Natasha's classes or I'm in the AT parenting community because I'm still going to learn what I need because that's part of my role is to have full knowledge of how anxiety or OCD works and what my role in it is so that I can control. And then what else is my role? My role is also to coach and cheerlead and encourage my child. And that might look different for each one of you. So those are our global roles, right? Connecting our kids to resources and therapy and coaching and and inspiring them at home, right? Can't do it for them. That's the big picture. The small picture. So you want to also get tiny with this. What is my current role in this? And so you might mentally for a while, and it doesn't have, you don't always have to do this. Like, I don't think I do this all the time. I might mentally say, what is my role currently? Maybe today, what is my role today? Or maybe like in this chapter right now, in this month, what is my role? And so I'll give you an example. With my son, he's kind of my front burner issue right now because he's the only one that's really like outwardly struggling with OCD. My daughter, my youngest daughter, has been doing really well right now. I don't want to rock the boat, but she really needs to be doing maintenance exposures. She's really not doing challenges. 
And, and so that's part of my role that I'm failing at. <laughs> that's the 80% right there. But with my son, I might say, so I have set an alarm and with the alarm, it goes off at 5 p.m. every day. And it reminds me to remind him to do an exposure because we have set up a therapeutic home environment where he is kind of on automatic pilot. And so that's my role right now is to remind him to do an exposure. If he chooses to not do it, that's his deal. When I see him struggling to eat, I'll give you another example. Yesterday, I made hamburgers and, he, and we didn't have any buns. And he said, I can't eat it without a bun. Now he's got ARFID. And if you don't know what that is, you can go to my website at atparentingsurvival.com. Go to the bottom. There's a search button. If I ever say anything that you don't know, just go to the, my website, go to the search button, type it in. And I, I have a podcast on it, ARFID, A-R-F-I-D. So he's got pans. You can go and Google that too. And so eating is one of his number one issues. Reading has come up as an issue too. He is having a reading issue and I've done a podcast on that pretty recently. And you can search that too. If you search learning issues, you'll find that episode where I talk about what's going on with him right now. But yesterday, so I made little cheeseburgers and now cheese used to be a huge trigger for him. He's done exposures. He likes cheese now. I mean, that's crazy. If, if you saw him two years ago, we were actually doing like microscopic little dots of cheese that he would eat where I barely literally could see the cheese. And that was his exposure. And now he likes cheese. (laughs) So who knows, right? Things improve. So he said, I can't eat it. It wasn't because he was picky. It was his OCD. And so he said, I can't, oh, mama. And I can tell, I can tell when it's his OCD because he has this like, this look of disgust, like this horror look. Oh, there's no way, mom, I can't. And I'll say, the hamburgers are really good. I got this new meat. It's actually really good. You're going to like it. I can't, mom, I can't even look at it. Well, I know that's his OCD. And so all I said to him, because my role is just to encourage exposures, that's where I'm at. You might be at a totally different place. Your role might be improve communication, or your role might be help them call out OCD, or your role might be set up exposures and sit with them. I don't know. But you take one little bite at a time. Like you figure out once you have all this education, like my courses walk you through exactly what you need to be doing. And the AT Parenting community, they actually get one of my courses for free. So Nobody has an excuse to say, I don't know what I need to be doing. Um, when they ask me questions in the forums, I could tell which people haven't taken my course yet. And I'll say, you didn't take the OCD class you have free access to, did you? Because I could tell by what, the, what they're asking that they don't understand what they need to be doing. And these classes are under three hours. So like within a week, I could have all that knowledge and be ready to go. It's like you know watching a movie and being done with it. And so with my son, all I said to him was, you know, if you eat that burger and it was like really, I made little tiny ones. They were like silver quarter size burgers. I said, if you eat just one burger, you can get five points. We have a behavioral system already in place. Everything's in place. So a new problem pops up, boom, I know what we're going to be doing. And so I feel like I just did an episode on that, on how to create a therapeutic home environment. I'm pretty sure I just did, but I didn't think he was going to do it, but that was my job. Now my job isn't to force him to do it. That was my role. And I wasn't going to catastrophize and be like, oh my gosh, he's going backwards. And you know, yesterday he didn't eat his dinner either. And the day before, I don't think he ate his dinner either. And he's going to have to be G-tubed. And I remember last year he was so thin and he was, he was really thin. And he almost did. I was like actually two years ago. Now that I think about it, this past year has been a blur. Anyway, I look up and he is doing it. He ate it. And then he ate half of it. And I walked by and I'm very casual because that's my role. One of my roles is to be a little ninja, right? I'm not going to hover. That's my role. 
And it's clearly defined. I'm going to make this more casual. I'm going to slightly coach. I'm going to pull back and I'm going to become detached. That's my role, right? I suggest things and then I let it go. And so I said, oh, you ate half of it. That's really good. Are you going to eat the other half to get your five points? And he said, yeah, mom, I'm just going to get a drink. Now, when he gets a drink, that is one of his compulsions. And I did. And then I watched him. And every time he took a bite, he took a sip. But then I timed him. (laughs) Now, he's not noticing any of this because over chewing and drinking in between every bite, like those are two compulsions and spitting out. Those are compulsions. This burger was probably a 10 on his list. And I watched and he was able to swallow within 30 seconds. No, it wasn't 30 seconds. It was a minute. That is very good because he could actually chew on one little microscopic piece of whatever for at least 10 to 15 minutes each to the point where he just couldn't swallow at all. And so I was watching him swallow. He was swallowing really well. He wasn't spitting. And so I was going to let the drink go because one, you know, maybe he's thirsty. And two, he was doing so well with all these other things. We don't have to have, it's not black or white. It's not like pure win or pure losing. His main OCD compulsion would be to avoid and not eat it. He was eating it and he was chewing it and he was doing well. And so that was my job. I didn't say anything else. I just said, when it was done, I said, great job. Here's your five points. And that was it. And so what is your role in that day? For my youngest daughter, lately, my role has been just to remind her of OCD. And so periodically lately, I've been going, you know, maybe you want to do exposures again, or, hey, how big do you think your O cloud is? And I'm just planting seeds. Ideally, my role is actually to get her to do maintenance exposures. And I need to up my game on that because I'm really failing. But there's the 80%. But at least I know intentionally that's my role right now. So what is your role? What's your role this week or what's your role this month? You may not know what your role is going to be in the future, but what is your role right now? Bring it down. Okay. The next one is some physical things. So when you get physically immersed in your child's pain, you have to pull yourself out of that and separate yourself. And that can be really hard. So grounding techniques can be helpful. Sometimes when I'm overwhelmed, I might go get an ice cube and, you know, put it in my mouth or actually I have high chews everywhere. (laughs) I like high chews. So I have them in my desk. I have them in my car. I have them in the seat that I sit in when I'm watching TV or on my iPad. I have them everywhere and they help me. They kind of actually help ground me because my jaw has to chew them and I focus on my chewing. I focus on the flavor. And so grounding techniques are about your senses, right? What do you see? What do you smell? What do you hear? What do you feel? However you can ground yourself in those things can be very helpful. And you might have to put headphones on for a minute and disengage. Maybe you have to watch a TV show or listen to a podcast or something that really pulls you out of whatever you're immersed in, your child's struggle or emotion, and gets you into something else. It kind of changes the channel for a second. Now, you may not be able to do that. And there definitely have been times in my world, in my life, where I am so in it and maybe I'm in the car, maybe my child really needs my help and I can't disengaged physically. And so I might take some deep breaths and I might mentally snap off for a second. And I might think my job right now is just to sit here and support them. Or my job right now is just to sit here and support them. My job right now is just to sit here and support them. I might like a mantra. I might say it over and over again. Like this is my job. Or I might focus on my hands and maybe I like, you know, intertwine them and then I untwine them. Or maybe I you know, tighten my leg muscles and then I untighten them and I I systematically move up my body. And so I'm physically there, but I'm detaching and I'm working on myself. That might be important. You might have a reset plan. And so your reset plan might involve 
different approaches of what you're going to do. So it might be clusters of everything I just talked about, where you say, you know what, if I'm getting too immersed in something, this is what I do. This is what I do if I can get away. And this is what I can do if I can't get away. For me, if I can go take a walk or go take a shower, that really helps. A lot of times that can't happen because if your child's imploding or exploding, sometimes you don't get, uh, and I'm by myself now, I don't have the, the luxury of always leaving, right? A lot of you don't, but I can do things mentally. I can say to myself, he's not my dad, you know, just focus on today. Or like, what is the problem right now? He's just not eating that one bite of food. It's okay, right? You don't have to win every battle. So we have to do our own mental talk. We have to do our own grounding and have our own reset plan. And the last thing I would say is practice these things outside of your kids. And a great way to practice is to meditate. Because when you meditate, you really practice shutting down and becoming that clear blank slate. I suck at meditating. (laughs) I suck so bad. And I want to meditate and I love the idea of it. You know, I have an anxious brain and I also have a history of panic attacks. And so focusing on my breath or my heart really upsets me. It can make me hyperventilate because I still have remnants of, you know, I guess one of my core fears is like not being able to catch my breath or not being able to breathe. I'm very claustrophobic. (laughs) These are genetic, right? I mean, like, so it's not surprising that I have these remnants of issues. We're going to have those things, but it's like, do we cater to them? But meditating and focusing on my breath does not make me calm because then I think, you know, when you do square breathing, I think, oh my gosh, I'm never going to get to my next breath, you know, and then I'm actually panicking. It's not relaxing or focusing on my heart. That's definitely not a good thing because that's been heart issues are like, make me feel very queasy. So I have found other ways to get into the zone and meditate. It doesn't have to be one exact way. Find what works for you. And so I find that walking meditations are very helpful for me. So when I go for a walk in the desert, I do a sound meditation where I'm listening and I'm listening for the birds and I'm really hyper-focusing on the gravel beneath me. I can hear my footsteps. I'm listening to like the wind blow. And so the idea of focusing on your breath when you're meditating is just to empty your mind. It's an anchor. It's so that your brain can go empty and you're you're anchoring your thoughts on one thing. You can anchor it on anything. And so I anchor it on the nature sounds and on the beat of me moving and my thoughts come in and out. Eventually they kind of fade. And so I have found that practicing that skill in an optimal environment like that translates over to when I'm in a non-optimal environment. So when my kids are, you know, a huge chaos storm, I am able to easily, not easily, it's easier, I'm trying to think of how to say that. It's easier for me to disconnect and detach while still being lovingly present than it had been in the past because that muscle of emptying and being clean and clear is being practiced. And so I know not everyone has time for meditation or a walk in the desert. I get that that's a privileged opportunity that I have because I'm working from home and I'm my own boss. I don't love that and thank everybody for that. But You can find your own way of doing that, whether that is practicing it at night before you go to bed. I like binaural beats, you know, where I'm like listening to sounds. So I find that sounds are actually very helpful for me. So if I'm even stressed and I'm sitting in the living room and my kids are like, just even the noise bothers me sometimes, I'll put in my AirPods, I'll listen to just some 
some beats. Um, I'm trying to think what I what it's called. I use Brainwave, which is an app, and they have a binaural binaural. Am I pronouncing that correctly? I'm sure somebody will email me and tell me, but don't. That really bothers me. <laughs> Just let me make my mistakes. It's okay, right? But I use that app. It's called Brainwave app, and I think it's only on iOS or Apple. Um, but I'm sure there's there's a million of those kind of things out there. It's B-I-N-A-U-R-A-L. And for me, that helps anchor me. And the cool thing about those is they actually like, you know, they kind of sync up with your brain waves. So on the app, I can pick like theta waves or delta waves, or they actually just have words like calm, calm waves, or help you focus waves. And I like that because depending on what I'm doing, I can have those waves in the background in my ears. And that really helps reset me. And it also helps me lovingly detach. So when I'm feeling revved up, I don't have to go anywhere to reset. I can put those AirPods in, put the waves in, those sound waves in. Um, you can put things on top of it like water. Water sounds don't go well with me because I have misophonia. It sounds like I have a lot of problems today. But anyway, water bothers me. It doesn't relax me most of the time. The sound of water. I love water, like being in water, but the sound of water bothers me. But you can just listen to the waves directly or you can put like beach sounds or whatever you want on top of it. But I could still hear my kids, but I'm having this input in my ears and it's, it's calming my nervous system. And if I really want to, I can one, I've got AirPods that I can like, they're noise canceling. So I can really tune my kids out without physically removing my body, or I can listen to the sounds and I can hyper-focus on the sounds and it helps remove my attention for a minute and kind of helps reset me. That's what I do. Find your thing. It doesn't have to be my thing, right? I'm just giving you concrete examples so that you can say, okay, okay, I get what she's saying. Let me think what works for me. I like to go jogging. I'll go for a jog. That wouldn't be my thing, but everyone's got their thing. Maybe you're like, I'll go for a horseback ride. I mean, who knows what you've got access to, or maybe I'll do some art that really helps detach me. But be practical and have a couple of different options in your toolbox, one for when you can't really physically get away and one when you can. And practice it when it's not involving your kids so that muscle is strong. I had to get an MRI um, last week. This is my last little story and then I'll wrap it up. But I had to get an MRI last week for a couple of reasons. My spine has always been a problem. And now that I'm alone, I'm kind of like anxious about growing old and not being mobile. That's an anxiety, I know. So I thought, you know, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna work on my spine. And so I'm in physical therapy, and it's it's mainly proactive. I just can't stand for long periods of time, which is a problem when you're 49. Like you should be able to stand. And then I was like, hear me roar. I got a bike rack this past year, and I got an e-bike, and I was like, I'm gonna go out on these bike paths by myself. And I got one of these really fancy bike racks that like you hit a button, you like kick it with your foot or your knee, and then it goes backwards so you can get into your trunk. Well, I did that and I had two e-bikes on there. You shouldn't do that. And I was like in my garage with my garage door closed. So there was like no room and it hit me (laughs) and it hit me really hard in my shoulder. And that was in November and my shoulder is still hurting. Um, So I thought, okay, I probably should get it checked out because I'm just like not moving my shoulder much. I hit my thumb too on my trash can and that's been since November, but I'm not dealing with that. (laughs) So I'm falling apart here. Anyway, I went to get an MRI for my spine, my neck, and my shoulder. 
shoulder being a separate problem. But so I was in the MRI for an hour because those are three different areas and I'm claustrophobic. I am incredibly claustrophobic where I would, it's disordered. And I also have like some sensory overload and I've had an MRI, but both times I had an MRI, it was an emergency situation where I was like not with it anyway. And so I don't have a memory of it. So I thought I would be fine. And I went in there, it's a closed MRI and I'm in this little, you know, any, I'm sure a lot of you have gotten MRIs before. And I started to panic and the guy, you know, he's like, here's a little ball, you know, if you want to squeeze it. And I was like, my heart, I could feel my heart in my throat. I was starting to panic. And I detached the way that I've been trying to practice detachment, not in an unhealthy, like dissociative way, but I went to my happy place, which is at this beach. And I closed my eyes and I said, don't open your eyes so that I don't see how small like airspace I have. And I controlled my breathing. I didn't focus on my breathing because that bothers me, but I just went to like the ocean and I just said, you got this. As long as you don't open your eyes, you're fine. Let's think about what you need to do tomorrow. Let's make a to-do list. And I was able to like completely detach from the actual situation I was in and relax. And finally, I almost fell asleep in there. So I'm ending with this story to show you that detachment in a healthy sort of way, not in a dissociative or uncaring sort of way, can be very, very helpful, not only with your kids, which I've spent this entire hour telling you how helpful it'll be for your kids, but even for yourself for your own stress, for your own scary moments, for your own fears, that reset and being in the now and detaching is so helpful. So I hope that you found this helpful. And if you have, don't forget to hit a star on iTunes, wherever you consume your podcast. Don't forget to leave a review. That really does help the podcast. I do always like to leave reading one of those if I see one. And I do apologize for those of you that leave reviews on other platform. Sometimes I don't see them and I'm trying to figure out a way to be able to catch all the ones that come through that aren't on Apple because I know a lot of you write reviews in other places, but I do want to say thank you to anxious lady. She sounds like me (laughs) coming from great Britain, a lifesaver for parents of OCD kids. I live in London and found this podcast last year when my daughter got very sick with severe OCD and ended up as an inpatient for five months. That must've been really rough. She is home now, and Natasha's advice for parents has been very helpful. With a child with OCD, a lot of what we say and how we interact with our children is so important. We don't always get it right, but with Natasha's guidance, we can certainly do our best to help our children. There is so much guidance out there about OCD, but this podcast is a really good place to get practical help and tips to help you and your child fight the OCD monster. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to write that, and I hope that your child is doing better. I know that must have been really tough. And I think this review is actually really apropos for what we talked about today, that there is so much that we can do to help our kids. It may not be the whole kit and caboodle. It may not feel like the silver bullet answer, but it is huge in how we show up for our kids and be kind with yourself, be compassionate with yourself. Please do not beat yourself up. Every day is a new day. It's a new blank canvas and you just have today to worry about and just today. So I hope that you find the sparkle in everything you do. Don't forget to check out AT Parenting Community at atparentingcommunity.com. If you want to you know, be part of my community and help me get to know you better, we'll get definitely get to know each other a lot better if you're in my community. And I will see you again next Tuesday. Take care. 
Thank you for listening to the AT Parenting Survival Podcast. To get additional support raising a child with anxiety or OCD, visit Natasha's online school of on-demand classes at atparentingsurvivalschool.com.